The morning had dawned clear and cold, with a crispness that hinted at the end of summer. They set forth at daybreak to see a man beheaded, twenty in all, and Bran rode among them, nervous with excitement. This was the first time he had been deemed old enough to go with his lord father and his brothers to see the king's justice done. It was the ninth year of summer, and the seventh of Bran's life. And so begins the first chapter of Bran's Ark in a Game of Thrones, the first post-prologue chapter in this book, and the second episode of Not a Cast. Welcome, my name is Emmett Booth. I go by Poor Quentin on Tumblr and Twitter, and with me is my illustrious co-host. I am Jeff. I am better known as Brendan Beefish, and I would like to state for the record that your reading of the opening paragraph was totally effing metal. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> I was rereading this chapter for this episode, and I, I had forgotten just what an iconic... I mean, the whole chapter is iconic, but this this opening paragraph is just so perfectly done in setting the mood and introducing the themes of it and getting you into Bran's head. Just every every sentence of that feels like it was crafted from ice into like a perfect ice sculpture. And you can just see the work Martin putting into introducing you into these important characters and this important setting and these important ideas. And I just I knew there was no way we could start this episode other than getting that first paragraph in because it's it sets the sets up the chapter so beautifully. Couldn't have said it better. And like Emmett said, welcome to our second episode of the Not a Cast. This episode is entitled The End of Summer, an analysis of a Game of Thrones, Brand One, the chapter that started it all. Uh, it's a really cool chapter. Emmett and I have both had not read it in a long time before we actually got to read it again for this podcast. So we're excited to be talking about it. But uh, before we actually get into the nitty gritty of this chapter and the episode itself, we want to talk a little bit about how deeply grateful we both are to all of you guys for the um, the tidal wave of feedback we got about our inaugural episode. We know it wasn't perfect, but we want to thank everyone who listened to the first episode, commented, and even live-tweeted. Someone even live-tweeted. I don't know if you can believe that through the episode. Um, we appreciate all the nice things everyone said about the episode, the criticisms, and the feedback just in general. We will always strive to be better, to do better, to do great things. Um, particularly for me personally, I wanted to uh, thank our friends, Bernie, who is at B word on Twitter and Jash, who is at 7.34 for a spirited discussion about whether Will was a dynamic point of view character. We had uh, some good back and forth between Emmett, um, these two individuals and, uh, and me, and these were, uh, the, and they were, they were only a, uh, the tip of the spear of a lot of lovely folks talking about the podcast, interacting with us. So thanks. It's really cool. I don't know if, if you feel this way, Emmett, but it's really cool knowing that despite it being, I guess at this point, seven years since The Dance with Dragons was published, that people are still passionate about this series. So we want to thank people for for participating in that and, and showing some passion for this series and for our little podcast. I couldn't agree more, brother. I mean, we don't want to just be two guys talking in a room. We are a part of the larger A Song of Ice and Fire fandom community. And one of the reasons we did this podcast is to engage and talk with people on a again, chapter by chapter basis about this book series we love so much, even as after you say seven years since the last one. So we were, I was, yeah, really grateful and really uh, just super blown away by the feedback and uh, praise we got for it. So thanks guys. And like Jeff said, we'll always strive to do better and uh, hope you stick around for us. Yeah. So thank you again. Um, one last little bit of house cleaning before we get into the episode. Uh, Emmett, just last week, as of this recording, so we're recording now on the 16th of January, you started a brand new essay series. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that before we actually dive into this chapter in Game of Thrones? Why, Jeff? I didn't know you cared. How flattering. 
so on my my, my blog on Tumblr, poorquentin.tumblr.com, one of the things I do there is I've been doing these regular essay series on A Dance with Dragons, the book that Jeff and I both believe is the best in the series, and just a series of it's essays. Not just we believe it, it is the best book. Objectively the best, hashtag objectively the best. We I've been doing a, a series of essay series on these storylines in that book. So I, I did an essay series on Tyrion's chapters. I did one on Davos's chapters, Davos. People pointed out I, I pronounce it incorrectly. I don't know why that is. That's just a tick in my brain. I just say Davos. But on Davos's <laughs> chapters uh, and one on uh, Quentin's chapters. Quentin is my favorite character in the whole series, and I did a, a long series on his. And now I just recently started an essay series on probably the most popular storyline in A Dance with Dragons, which is Theon's storyline. So just the the introductory essay went up. Uh, and the essay series is entitled Remember Your Name. It's going to be focused on Theon's identity journey over the course of A Dance with Dragons, and I'm going to be doing uh, one essay per chapter. And there's, So there's seven chapters, so with intro and conclusions, should be like eight or nine essays. And yeah, I'm putting together the essay on his first dance chapter right now, which is going very well, so uh, I look forward to writing more of those. Are you going to do the, uh, the the Theon Wins chapter that George released right after A Dance with Dragons was released? I was thinking about that today. I'm not sure. So much of that chapter isn't about Theon. It's about Stannis and about what he's up to and his, well, his, his general badassery in general, which as, as huge Stannis fans that we both are, that certainly gives me a lot to talk about. <laughs> but it seems it seems a little extraneous to Theon's arc. So I might I might just allude to it towards the end of the series. Just a little. The, the one thing that it kind of does involve in Theon's arc is that Stannis uh, is utterly refusing to be afraid of Ramsay in any respect and just finds the idea that he should fear the bastard and Bolton to be ridiculous. And that's kind of an interesting counterpoint to Theon. So I might bring that up. But other than that, I think I, know, I love the way that his arc ends in dance with him taking that leap with Jane, that kind of amazing leap of faith and breaking free from Ramsay. So I, I, I might just end it there, but we shall see. I am a huge fan of that Theon wins a winter chapter for sure. Well, I will, uh, continuously attempt to convince you to write an essay about the, the Theon wins chapter, you know, in, in love out of, not out of uh, pestering, but out of love. Um, of course. So I mean, it's just basically, I, 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 that chapter is just the case for Stannis Baratheon basically. So I could, I could yeah. definitely write it about it in that respect. Yeah, for sure. Well, excellent. I uh, really enjoyed your first foray and I really can't wait to see what else that you, you have in store. What I really like about some of the, the ways that you write is that you write a short first essay which introduces readers to the series and gives us a a taste of what we're about to experience and that's something that i'm excited to get into um into some depth because it's been a while since i've read the theon dance with dragons chapters as well since i've been in, in, involved in other storylines since then um all that being said uh let's dive into the chapter uh, we've talked a, little, a lot about some admin stuff and now we're actually going to talk about the chapter itself um you know i hate to put this on you again but your summary last time for the prologue was super can you take us through Brand 1 from A Game of Thrones? Would be my pleasure, Jeff. Flattery will get you everywhere in this life. So <laughs> if if the prologue to A Game of Thrones was a horror movie or like a horror short, you know, about a few people, a few hapless folks wandering in the wild and being set upon by a monster, Brand 1 to me, visually in my mind, it's like a stained glass window in a church. It's like this iconic, streamlined, beautiful, perfect, cohesive image. It's It's... The ideal way to start a story, and this is where the story really begins. The prologue was a teaser. It was a hint. It was an establishing shot, as you called it. It set up the others, and the others don't appear for the rest of the book. They're just supposed to hover, as we said in that last episode, in the back of your mind. This is where the 
the themes and ideas and characters that will drive the story are really first introduced. The prologue, like all of the prologues, arguably in A Song of Ice and Fire, was so much about powerlessness, about being, you know, washed away by forces bigger than you. Uh, this first chapter of the book, post-prologue, uh, Bran won a Game of Thrones, is about how you engage with these things when you do have power, when you do have control, when you do have authority. How do you act on them? How do you how do you balance mercy and justice? How do you know when it's it's proper to carry out an execution? And as Ned goes on, why why you should to do it yourself? And if you can't bear to do it, then maybe it's not just. It gets into the dualities of characters, of John versus Rob versus Theon, and how they all play off each other. It gets into the direwolves and the, the huge, important role they will play for the Starklings going forward. It establishes the character of Ned Stark, the central character of this first book, arguably the protagonist of this first book. And it, of course, introduces us collectively to the Starks of Winterfell, who are more than any other characters, kind of the, the central focus, especially this first book and arguably the series as a whole. So if the prologue was a hint of things to come, this is where George Martin really starts establishing what his story is about. And I think he does an incredible job. I I hadn't read this chapter in a long while, and it's it's a chapter that's so discussed and is, is, is so well-known and it was so translated so faithfully in the show that it's easy to dismiss it or to th think that there's nothing more to it or just keep it in the back of my head and I'd forgotten just how beautifully written it is and just how strong the imagery is and how cl clearly the themes come through and it was just such a pleasure to read again it's it's I have an almost spiritual reaction to it it's so perfectly set up and I, I've been rereading it over the last few days I've been really eager to talk about it with you sir yeah it, th this chapter is wonderful and it really throws you into the world. We talked about last time about how the prologue introduces us to a realistic high fantasy. And here you get that same feeling, but you get it in a different way. It's not about magical demons coming to kill all of humans. It's about a family. It's it's a family story set in a medieval-ish background where we uh, we come to know these characters and George does a great job of introducing us to not some, but not all of the main star characters. You have Bran, Rob, Eddard, uh, and Theon being the ones that are the most prominent there. And then you have other side characters that like Harwin and others that we will be encountering throughout the series in different venues, but as either in Eddard Stark's uh, entourage or in the Brother Without Banners. So it's a really interesting uh, way that establishes House Stark and establishes the story as a family story. And it, there's so many lines from this chapter that are iconic. If you look up on Google, A Song of Ice and Fire quotes, some of the lines in this chapter are the first results that come up. Can a man be brave if he is afraid? And that is the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff is, is, is iconic. And, and there's a reason why it's iconic is that it's so well written and so engaging to us as readers that really makes us want to keep turning the page to the next chapter, which is Catelyn, which we'll talk about at the end. And we really just get a, uh, a fantastic look at House Stark, some of House Stark, and we get some of these lines that kind of send, send, still send chills down my back and still raise the hair on my arm when I read them, you know, five years after I first read the chapter itself. 
Absolutely. It's a chapter, like you say, about establishing the dynamics within House Stark. It's a chapter, as we'll get into more, that sets up Northern culture and how they are a culture apart from the west of Westeros and how Ned has integrated that culture into his model of leadership. And like I said in the in my opening monologue, it's a chapter about how you handle power and authority with both the scene, the opening execution with Garrett, and then the later discussion over what to do with the direwolves. It's a, a chapter that is concerned about how you how you play the Game of Thrones, really, functionally, how you manage yourself as a person with power in this world. And so much of the rest of the book is about learning the rules and, and trying to establish yourself within a new system or within a, a dangerous system and how that ultimately reflects back on your own morals and ethics and what you want to do with yourself. That's true with Ned in King's Landing. That's true with John at the Wall. It's true with Dany in the Dothraki Sea. It's true with Catelyn in a variety of settings, Catelyn and Tyrion as they both travel around. Mm-hmm. And it, it all it all really starts here yeah. with, with Bran being brought forth to witness justice, if we can term it that, and his, his conversation with Ned that he has about it afterwards, and then the conversation about the direwolves. And the relationship to the prologue is, is fascinating to me in this regard, because really what this chapter is about is covering up what happened in the prologue. That Garrod, the one witness to this oh, yeah. incredibly important event that we saw, this apocalyptic return of, of this... Uh, the, the others who are determined to wipe out all life and that story is silenced that story is is swept aside and the 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 effect of it and the import it would have and the possible preparations that could be done if it was widely known and accepted that's all taken off the table immediately and it's taken off the table by your dad it's taken off the table by the, the main character of the book the character that everyone else is turning to for comfort uh you know the beloved great lord ned stark and he is the one who unknowingly uh, prevents this very important word from getting out. And so that immediately sets up the kind of relationship between the political and the magical plots that will carry forth through the rest of the series. And that uh, sets up that, you know, again, like I said in the, our last episode, that the, what happened in the prologue is supposed to remain in the back of our head at all times, because it's not going to show up in the series itself. It's, I mean, the series itself in the book itself in the, yeah. in the first book of game of Thrones, the others remain completely in the background and it's by by executing Garrett, Ned is almost he's he's ushering in the rest of the book. He's acting as the herald for the rest of the book and saying, "Keep that in mind." But that's not where the rest of this first book is going to be about. And now we're moving on to a completely different section of the story. Yeah, it, you know, it feels almost like a second prologue. So we have the prologue in that we that we did last week, and now we have the prologue of the the real story. Right, the prologue sets is almost the prologue for a Song of Ice and Fire. Brand one is the prologue for a Game of Thrones, and there's a reason for that, and um, there, there's a meta reason for that rather, um, in that Brand one was the first chapter that George R. R. Martin ever wrote for A Song of Ice and Fire. So um, let's rewind back to the year 1991. The month is June. Nirvana's Nevermind album was about to change rock music forever. The Soviet Union was in the process of dissolving. And a successful, but not exactly world-famous author by the name of George R. R. Martin was writing. But he wasn't writing A Song of Ice and Fire. He was instead writing a book uh, that was known as Avalon, which was set in the Thousand Worlds series. Rather than the Thousand Worlds setting. World? Whatever. Um, three chapters into writing Avalon, George R. R. Martin was struck by the scene in his head that he just couldn't get out of his head, that he felt that he had to write it. And uh, here's George speaking about it. He says, quote, It was the summer of 1991. I was still involved in Hollywood. 
My agent was trying to get me meetings to pitch my ideas, but I didn't have anything to do in May and June. It had been years since I wrote a novel. I had an idea for a science fiction novel called Avalon. I started working on it, and it was going pretty good when suddenly it came to me, the scene from what would ultimately be the first chapter of A Game of Thrones. It's from Bran's viewpoint. They see a man beheaded, and they find some direwolf pups in the snow. It just came to me so strongly and vividly that I knew that I had to write it. I sat down to write it, and like, and in like three days, it just came right out of me, almost in the form that you've read. Unquote. So this chapter is the first chapter that Martin ever conceived in writing A Song of Ice and Fire, and everything we read in A Song of Ice and Fire, but especially everything we read in A Game of Thrones, flows from this brand chapter itself. Which is interesting that it took Martin such a short amount of time to write the chapter because George has said repeatedly that Bran is his most difficult character to write. And the reason being is that he said things like that George, that Bran is his, most, his youngest viewpoint character and that he also has the strongest connection to magic or one of the strongest connections to magic in the story and that he doesn't want to overwhelm readers with magic in the story and it has to be handled well. So Bran chapters are always a challenge for him and then it goes more slowly than some of the other chapters. And I think it's a really interesting meta dynamic in George's writing is that this chapter comes into fruition very quickly. Unfortunately, as he progresses, he and Bran becomes much more magical and he's still a young kid. He George has difficulty writing him, but some of the Bran chapters are some of my favorite in the story as we're going to see throughout. And it's really uh it's it's cool to to, to think that Bran is the genesis of the story and there's an interesting idea which we'll talk about at the end about Bran being the first point of view character and the last point of view character, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. That's very interesting backstory in terms of that singular image coming to mind. Cause like I said, the, I think about this chapter that way It's like this, like a, a gorgeous statue or a gorgeous piece of art, a painting, a stained glass window, that single image popping into his brain and kind of everything flowing from that. He really gets that across. Like it feels that way as the reader, even before you know that backstory, that this is the, the kind of the primal scene that everything will flow from. And like, I remember, I remember when my, I was a little kid and my mom was reading to me, uh, the book of three, the first book in the, the Prydane Chronicles, a, a fantasy series. Uh, and, uh, which, uh, a series of books that I really enjoy overall and really love, but the opening pages of those books of that book is so filled with like random weird names and allusions to stuff we've yeah. never heard of that by the time like we were a few pages in and we were both howling with laughter at how much how how kind of <laughs> blatant and kind of fake and how just how non-immersive it was in those opening pages how it was doing everything it could to avoid hooking you in it seemed like and this is the exact opposite of that it does yeah. give you bits and pieces of information and hints at the wider story as, as we'll get into later but it is it is designed to immerse you and hook you in and keep you reading, and it is built around that that single image of the kids finding the dire wolves in the snow, and it's it's a, a a perfect articulation of that image in his head that he had to get down. He got it down perfectly. No, I, and I totally agree. And this this speaks to something about George's writing. There's a lot of people that criticize how Martin writes. He has an idea in his mind. He has a general overall direction that he thinks the story is going to be going, but he doesn't necessarily outline things. He doesn't sit and outline things for months before he actually puts pen to paper and, and writes a chapter. He'll just go right in and write a chapter because he's inspired to write a chapter. And this is kind of the perfect encapsulation of, of some of the strengths of, of George's writing in that he's so taken with this image that he develops 
this chapter and this this chapter and then develops an entire seven or eight or nine or however many books is going to be series of books because he was inspired by this by um by a vision he had in his head and by uh his writing process and i think it's 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 a cool way to write and it's uh it's something that we should take in mind as we're waiting for the winds of winter is, is that a lot of times people are like, Oh, why is it taking so long? Why is, why are we waiting and waiting and waiting for the books? Well, the reason being is that Martin is, is looking at writing these books in a different kind of way that you would normally think in that he's typically writing and then rewriting and then editing and then rewriting. And he's, dropping plots and picking up plots and trying to figure out the best way to put the story together without having to be constrained by an outline. And that does have an impact on how fast a book comes out, but it does also have an impact on on how well a book is written. And in this chapter, we see um, a bit of that where Martin is not, didn't write with an outline in mind. He wrote with a, with an inspiration at heart. And that's something that makes Martin a somewhat different writer than most of the writers that you might be reading in fantasy or in the sci-fi series who tend to typically outline long before they actually start writing chapters themselves. Yeah, that's an excellent point. He's always, you know, describes himself as a gardener rather than an architect. And he's, he follows his passion in terms of what chapter he's writing on a given day, like you say, and then he goes back and drops lines as needed and crafts it to the, to a, a proper image. But again, you can really see when you read this chapter that, that, that moment when they find the direwolves in the snow was always going to be the central image of this chapter, and he kind of constructed it yes. around that. So uh, with that said, let's get into a little bit of the, the specifics of the, the plot and structure of this here let's chapter. Bran won a Game of Thrones. So there are two major events in this chapter, the execution of Garrod and the discovery of the direwolves, and they are linked in a lot of interesting ways. In, in both cases, the, the question is, do I kill this person or not, whether the person is Garrod or the, <laughs> the litter of direwolf pups. And that raises questions of mercy and justice and, like I said, how you handle yourself in this world if you're someone with authority. What do you do when you have a monopoly on violence? How, how best should you wield that? When do you need to pull back? Uh, what are the good reasons to pull back? What are the bad reasons? And uh, with, with Garrod, uh, with Garrod, there's an interesting tension because, like I said, we know what it is that Garrod saw. We know how vital and important it was, but none of the characters do. So this is... For for John, John is described as an old hand at justice, as are Rob and Theon. So this mm-hmm. is just another execution for them, no different than any other. For Bran, this is his, his first time. This is kind of a part of a coming of age story for him, where Ned has brought him forward to see this as an example of of what he will have to do one day. Perhaps Ned says you're going to hold a hold fast in your brother's name, and you may be called upon to do this. So you have to learn what it looks like and what it means, and the sheer shock and visceral horror of taking another person's life. And then you have that contrast with the direwolves where can, can Ned really bring himself to, to kill these very clearly innocent creatures, especially given his, his, <laughs> his children's immediate love for them. And both of these events beyond these specific ideas of mercy and justice that they bring to the fore are designed to introduce us to the dynamics and personalities of House Stark. You have a, uh, you know, John being a, a good supportive older brother the brand and helping him out telling him to to look and helping hold on to his horse you have theon acting like as john says an ass by laughing and kicking the head away you have the interesting john versus rob debate over whether garrett died well or simply just dead of fear at that point and you have ned taking this overall the overall scene of execution with garrett as a teachable moment for bran in terms of telling him who we are starks 
what it means to be first men and how you if you want to execute someone you have to be able to look in their face and hear their last words and if you can't do that then maybe they don't deserve to die and then you have that kind of mirrored and doubled with the direwolves where Ned clearly can't bring himself to look at the direwolves in the face and hear their last words so to speak and so he is not able to bring himself to do it and uh, by the end you have even John raising you know the the very legacy and sigil of House Stark, and saying that these 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 direwolf pups are connected to that identity and that meaning, while excluding himself. So you you have these events that are compelling and interesting on their own with Garrett and the direwolves, but you can also see Martin making use of them to introduce you to these characters, which is which is great. You don't he doesn't need to stop the story dead to introduce us to the characters. He doesn't uh, have story events that are separate from the characters. He's trying to do both these things at once. He's trying to keep the plot going, introduce you to important elements and ideas, but use these to illuminate character in a way that, for me, feels really very organic and not forced. It, it can be hard to introduce new characters, especially at the beginning of your series, in a way that doesn't feel very forced, like you're just they're just walking onto the stage and being introduced, but this is a way that feels very natural a way of introducing these characters and dynamics that feels that it flows perfectly from the prologue and makes sense within what's happening. It's not bewildering or out of nowhere. And I think it's, it's just such a, a perfect way to introduce you to what's going on. It really is. And um, you just get a, a sense of the characters without George coming out and saying, Rob was 14 years old and he was the oldest son of Ned Stark and was the heir to Winterfell. You get all of that through the dialogue and through Bran's observations as opposed to having a having a, a playbill which says give some minor biographical details about the characters um, and that's a good way of, of writing it and, but I was curious about something who do you think was right was it Rob or John who was right about Garrett if Garrett died well versus uh dying purely of fear at that point well it's interesting to consider that yeah. argument in light of what Ned tells Bran which is that a, a man can only be brave if he's afraid so for for Garrett to die bravely he, in that regard I guess he would have to be afraid but when of course what John and Rob and Bran and Ned think Garrett was afraid of was the execution they think that's what was driving his fear that he was he was petrified of being put to death but we of course know that first of all, that Garrett is a grizzled veteran badass who didn't fear death at all, and also that what he specifically was terrified of was something considerably worse than, than death. Was these these horrible, nightmarish, apocalyptic beings out to destroy all life? So in that regard, I would I would probably I would probably side with John and say that Garrett is is just past courage or cowardice at that point, uh, and that he was he was essentially he was a broken man. To, to jump forward a few books to Septon Marable's <laughs> iconic speech. Garrett was, he was dead inside, basically. Marable has that great speech about how all thought of home is gone, all thought of a future is gone. You're just living moment to moment, trying to find a, what's the line, a, a skin of sour wine you can drown your fear in for a few hours. I imagine that's all Garrett was thinking at that point. Just get south, get as far south as I possibly can, and that's all that was all that was defining him, which, as Ned points out, does make you dangerous. I mean, Ned says to Bran he executed Garrett not just because Garrett broke the law, but because uh, an oathbreaker is a, a dangerous person to have running around your particular corner of the world because they know it's death if they're caught, so they'll, they might they will not flinch from any crime no matter how vile. Uh, so that's yeah. I, I get that as a legitimate source of fear, but I think yeah, the joke is that 
as as John and Robert having this debate, they they completely don't understand what was going through Garrett's head. They don't know what he was afraid of. They don't know what brought him to that state. So it's almost, I guess I would say I side with John, but it's almost moot which one of them is correct because they have they so don't have enough information to make the call. And like only Bran gets a sense of it. There's a great little moment he was thinking about what he saw in the ragged man's eyes, and you get the sense that only. Only Bran, for a moment, might understand what's really going on with this guy. But yeah, again, like, John and... A lot of this chapter is about Garrett's execution as our introduction to the Game of Thrones, to the politics and mores and social customs of this world and how it is run. Yet the what drove Garrett south is something that completely undercuts and almost renders irrelevant all of that. So it's... it's I love that tension in this chapter, where you're getting, in, you're getting a lot of information about how this world works, but... You're supposed to keep in the back of the mind that, again, that all of this is be, really being fundamentally done wrong. That Ned is using this as a as a, a lesson in justice for Bran, but he has unknowingly committed a huge injustice in terms of the overall consequences for Westeros because he silenced this extremely important information that Westeros mm-hmm. absolutely needs to know if they're going to survive another winter. So, on, on the one hand, he's he's being a good he's doing what good dads are supposed to do. On the other hand, he's really falling down on the job in terms of what the Warden of the North and what the Starks are really there for, in terms of what Winterfell and the Wall are really there to do, which is protect humanity from the others. And you could, we were talking a little bit last time about how the, the wildlings are ultimately just other human beings and aren't the real enemy of the Night's Watch or the rest of Westeros. And you can, in, like the very, in the very second chapter of this paragraph, after the one I read, uh, Rob thought, the Garrett, the man they're about to execute, he was a wildling, his sword sworn to Mance Raider, king beyond the wall. It made Bran's skin prickle to think of it. He remembered the hearth tale's old nan told them. The wildlings were cruel men, she said, slavers and slayers and thieves. <laughs> they consorted with giants and ghouls, stole girl children in the dead of night, and drank blood from polished horns. And their women lay with others in the long night to sire terrible half-human children. Now, for all, there might be some truth to that last bit. It might be just a, a, a notch or two off from the truth regarding what Craster does with his children. But immediately there is this othering of the wildlings, so to speak. This presentation of them as kind of inhuman, just a swarming, faceless, homogenous mass of a horde of barbarians. Uh, and that's simply not the case, obviously, on its own, and also an extremely dangerous position to take given the need to ally with the wildlings against the others. So we're, we're immediately seeing in this chapter not only that the truth about the others is being silenced, but these kind of ideas and attitudes that will make it very difficult to come together against the others because the wildlings are being uh, thought of as so inhuman and unacceptable and fundamentally different. The grand irony, of course, is that Ned gives a speech about how we are different, the first men blood flows in our veins, even though the first men blood flows, first men blood flows in the wildlings' veins too. So the, the Starks arguably have more in common with the wildlings than they do with the Andals. Uh, and yet you have thousands of years and over the divide of the wall and the constant fighting back and forth, you see these divisions have set in that that makes empathy and understanding so difficult. And uh, and this, again, this chapter is, is setting that up right away. It's not lingered on. It's like no one stops to tell you the history of the Wildlings and the Night's Watch. It's just a thought in Bran's head in passing, and it's just enough for you to pick up on it as you go. Yeah, I uh, I have to agree with everything you said. And I just love the opportunity to get you to monologue for long periods of time um, <laughs> just by asking a very simple question. So I consider that a success right there. 
Yeah, well, I I do love the sound of my own voice, Jeff, so that's never going to be a problem. But to give you an opportunity to give you an opportunity to talk about what you talk about so well, let's get into one of the central motifs and themes of this chapter, which is northern justice and rule about the, the lesson Ned is trying to teach Bran and how he functions as a lord. So do you want to get into that, good sir? I absolutely would. Thanks. Um, the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword is a really integral Stark piece of their identity. It's an integ- it's a piece of Stark identity that just runs throughout the entirety of the series. And that Northern justice and rule is different from any other house with, that is a lord, a knight, a king, a prince, anyone. It's distinct. Lord Eddard Stark swings the sword. He doesn't have a headsman like Robert... Uh, his his best friend Robert, or the Targaryens that proceed before him. And there's no ill in pain. It's just Ned and his ancestral sword, Ice. And then the thing is, is that it does feel different, and it can almost read as brutal, but it's not necessarily. Now, whatever your feelings about the death penalty for your own um, your own personal life and, and, and beliefs and things like that, there is a, a reason and a rationale behind it. And the reason that I'm reading in this chapter is that Stark rule isn't aloof. It's personal. It acts as protective of his people. And then, as Emmett talked about earlier, Ned tells Bran that he has to kill Garrett because he's an oathbreaker and that he knows his life is forfeit, so he will not flinch from any crime no matter how vile. What Ned is saying there is that this guy, if he doesn't kill him right then and there, then this guy could go throughout the North and rape, murder, rob, do anything he can in order to survive because he is a broken man. He is a oath breaker. So he's, he's a, he's double whammy there. And there's, there's nothing that he's, he would be, um, there's nothing he would not feel that he needs to, to do in order to, to survive. And that includes commit awful and terrible crimes. Something that we is emphasized in, uh, as the war of the five Kings progresses. Um, it's really interesting too, is that Ned is the one who's personally swinging the sword. And that is a really interesting concept in justice. And we can talk about the philosophy of it, but I'm not that educated in philosophy to really talk about that piece of it. But it is something that we see in other instances. For instance, as Jorah Marmont talks about later, Ned Stark actually travels to Bear Island after it's revealed that Jorah Mormont is selling his people into slavery. And he's there to bring justice to Jorah Mormont. He wasn't going to delegate it out to the Glovers or to the, or to other Mormonts or to any other northern house or one of his knights or one of his men-at-arms. Ned Stark himself went to Bear Island to bring justice to Jorah Mormont. And this is a very personalized rule. So we don't just see Ned Stark executing people personally. That's not the extent the full extent of the personalized rule that he exhibits in the North. We see it in areas where Ned reaches out to the lowliest people in Winterfell and brings them to his own table, his own, his family's own table and feasts them and talks about who they are, what they're doing, their concerns. And it's a really inspirational way of leadership. And as Arya remembers Ned saying, quote, know the men who follow you. And let them know you. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger. And that's really great leadership. I think you can you can read as, as however many books you can about leadership, 
watch so many inspirational videos, but it's, it really comes down to having a concern and care for the people that are, that you're leading. And that's something that Ned does extremely well. And he, you know, you see stuff throughout the narrative that reinforces this concept that Ned is a, a guy that goes around and, and is, is a present Lord. He's not in the, at the top of the high tower consulting with spell books, like the high towers, as we find out in a feast for crows, he's not hiding in the red keep like Cersei Lannister and the, and the rest of the Lannisters come a feast for crows. You know, he's also not Stannis Baratheon as much as we love him hiding out in Dragonstone until, you know, he finds the opportunity to go to, to Westeros. And I apologize. You can see in my Skype Emmett giving me a look of, of, of anger about talking about our boy Stannis, but it's true. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. That's perfectly fair. Stannis gradually develops a more kind of attentive, focused uh, style of leadership when you get to stuff like him refusing the Claw Isle plan because it's evil uh, or yep. letting the wildlings through the wall. But absolutely, when we first meet him, he is it's a direct parallel to Bale and Greyjoy. Both of them start Clash of Kings on their ugly little islands, sitting in a room and being mad. Like, and that's, that's yep. just what they're doing, just being super resentful. So he, he learns better, but that only hits home because he starts off in a quite unpleasant fashion. So my automatic place flinch as a Stannis fan aside, you are 100% <laughs> sir, 100% correct. Carry on. Yeah, no, it's it's really cool, though, because, you know, Eddard goes to the Mountain Clansmen, who are a bunch of, who are basically the North's rednecks, right? You know, f- smoking pipes, drinking and fighting and, and feasting all day. But he goes and visits them. And, you know, John even recounts in A Dance with Dragons, his Ned saying, my Lord Father said he never ate half so well as when he was visiting with the clans, which indicates that he went out to these guys in the mountains and hung out with them. And, and you know, here's the result. The end result is, is that the personal rule of the Starks results in intense loyalty by most Northmen. And the North remembers the Starks long after Ned's dead. You get stuff like King in the North, where Rob is crowned king at River Run, at the end of a Game of Thrones, you get affectionate nicknames that the clansmen give him. They call him the Ned, which I think is hilarious. And I like to sometimes think about the Ned, uh, the Stark being called the Ned by these big burly clansmen with their two-handed great swords as they're wandering around. And then finally, you know, something that we, Em and I both find extremely inspirational is that the clansmen, the Northmen, especially the clansmen, ride to Winterfell to save, quote, Ned's girl from the Boltons in A Dance with Dragons. And that's, the, that's not the only reason that they're, they're, they're with, that's not the only reason that they're with Stannis, but it is a defining feature that really, you know, has a emotional impact on us as readers. And it all stems from Ned being a guy who was not hiding in his castle, being a guy that went out throughout his realm and did good by his people, whether it's the lowliest servants, the common people, the lords, the mountain clansmen, everyone really. So it, it's, it all stems from, in my mind, it's, it all stems from he who sends, he who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Amen, brother. I agree with everything you said there. I think, uh, like I said in the opening or opening episode on the prologue, my favorite line in the whole series is men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. Yes. And Ned is the ultimate example of it. Like, yes, he lost the game in King's Landing. He ended up as a head on a spike. But his legacy endures. There were still people fighting in his name for his children precisely because he gave a damn about them. Or I think of yep. the great Edmure line, uh, my people, they were afraid. When he's got, he's hiding his people inside River Run when the Lannister armies are on their way. That there is, 
there, that this isn't just a purely grimdark world where everything is terrible and everyone is awful and caring about anything is stupid. Like, Cersei and Littlefinger are wrong about that. They're incorrect. Like, when, you know, there's the, the line about when, in Ned's last chapter, when he's having a vision of Robert that turns into Littlefinger and says, you know, can, can honor protect you? Can honor shield and feed your children? Well, in the long term, actually, yes. Honor does <laughs> yeah. shield Ned's children because Ned's vassals go to war to keep that child safe. In the long term, actually treating people decently is the better way to go. Like, the Tywin's crude Machiavellianism is completely wrong. His legacy is collapsing. His children are turning on each other. The Lannister regime he worked for for so long is a feast for crows. And Ned's vassals are on the way back, and they're trying to restore his children to Winterfell. So in the end, Ned won and Tywin lost. There's, I think, it's it's the interpretation that honor gets you killed, I think, misses the overall thrust of the series, which is that it might get you, the individual, killed, it might put you in a bad situation, but in terms of whether it's the right thing to do for your family and your people and your society as a whole, I think the series very clearly comes down to is, is yes. It might not automatically reward you, but in the long term, the rewards are there, and the, the, the benefit to the big picture and people as a whole is there. And this, I think it's, uh, it's much more stirring because it doesn't pretend it's going to be easy or automatic or have no casualties, but the worthiness of Ned's way of life comes through. His, the, the memory of him is stronger than ever. And I, I agree, I think it's the, the clansmen marching on Winterfell and dance in the name of Ned's girl is, is some of the most inspirational stuff in the series. And it's, you know, and it's not, I mean, of course, I'm sure they, they want some political rewards out of it, but it's not just because, oh, if we, you know, if we get the Ned's girl, she'll she'll be nice to us and give us castles and lands and favors. It's specifically because, no, he, she's the daughter of this guy who did right by us, and we're yep. going to do right by him. And that's Absolutely. that's an extremely moving articulation of the social contract. And the social contract existed in a form even before the word social contract came into being <laughs> politically. Like, there is, an, there is an idea of how to make this work, and I think you see it exemplified with Ned, and that, that definitely begins in this chapter with his discussion of, of justice and, and, and loyalty and service and ethics to Bran. Like, I love that line about how it's how he says like if you can't bear to look that person in the eyes and see their last words then that means they don't deserve to die that means what you're doing is unjust that if it's that painful to you then you're doing it wrong and that's and if you hide behind execution yeah. he says you forget what death is and that's so such a vital vital idea for the series that if you are a leader making these life or death decisions you can't be detached from the consequences of them and that's something that we see Joffrey and Cersei being completely detached from the, the horrible consequences of their decisions. We see Stannis at first being completely detached from the consequences of his decisions and, and learning to do better. Uh, Renly, our, our, our favorite character, <laughs> uh, is, is, is thoroughly detached from anything resembling real-world consequences to what he's doing. Uh, Dany has to... There's that great moment in Dany's storm arc when she orders a bunch of masters crucified and then later has to go out and smell their bowels and the blood and hear the moans and really realize, oh, this is, I felt just, but this is what it looks like to, to kill somebody. Yeah. And and Ned Ned really keeps that in mind. And I think that's something that's really valuable about his character. And again, that's such a great thing to do in your, your opening chapter is, is set up that idea and then, and then carry it out and filter it through a bunch of different characters and explore it for the rest of the books. And I love, 
it's just such a testament to how well this series is written that we could see this nugget in this first chapter and expand upon it to how it's playing out in the fifth book and with completely different characters. Yeah. But that, that, that link is there, and that's such a powerful thing for me. It's one of my favorite aspects about these series, this series is that you can, you can trace those patterns across years, across books. Yeah. It's, the links are all there. So in that same vein, do you, when you're reading this chapter, what do you think about, do you think that Ned feels guilty about this or responsibility for what happens with Garrett? And then, and then you've, you've hinted at this, but I'll, but I'll put you on the, to the question now, does that have a direct impact on his, what he ends up deciding with the dire wolves towards the, at the end of the chapter? It's it's difficult to say. Like, uh, unlike the show, we're never sh- where they execute uh, Will. We're never shown Garrod bringing up the others to Ned. He doesn't mention the White Walkers. There's no hint that Ned has any idea why Garrod went south. Uh, as, as far as I can glean from this chapter, Ned feels perfectly fine about executing Garrod. I think it is the contrast with the Direwolves that definitely starts to shift his mind a little bit because, like we said, what really... Ned's justification for executing Garrett is first and foremost that this guy is, is is a potentially loose cannon on my lands. He knows his life is forfeit if he's taken, so he'll do anything to, to avoid that, and I can't have that guy roaming around my land hurting my people. But the direwolves, like, the, the mom is dead. The pups are, are no danger to anyone. They, they're, you could, they're probably going to die if you leave them on their own. It's such a, such a clear presentation of innocence that I think that does trouble Ned's heart a little bit. And I think that is part of... I think he... If I had to articulate it, it's that Ned realizes, well, if I kill, if I just kill these random pups in the middle of the woods, that makes everything I just said to my son bullshit. Like, all that yeah. stuff about justice and ethics and it matters what they did and it, you can't have... Like, that's... I'm going to look like I'm just a bully justifying myself to my son if, if, I, if I do this in front of him. So I think... I think, yeah, there is... I think there, Ned is concerned in that moment, I think, of looking like a complete hypocrite. And I also think with Ned, Ned has such a, a thing about dead children, about dead oh, youths, gosh, yeah. because, of, uh, because of what happened to his sister, um, what happened to the, the much younger Martell children at Tywin's hands. Uh, you, you see it come up later in terms of him doing his level best to stop Robert from killing Dany. He goes out of his way to try to save Cersei's kids. So I think you definitely see that here with the direwolf pups where... Crossing that line and hurting children for him just kind of destabilizes that whole social contract he's trying to uphold. So I think that I think that does factor into his decision uh, to show mercy. Although, of course, the ultimate nail in the coffin there, as we'll get into, is is John bringing up the association between the direwolves and uh, and the Stark sigil. Yeah. Uh, but with, which ties into, of course, the Stark identity that comes up early in the chapter when Ned is talking about how the First Men flows, blood flows in our veins and we are different. And that, you know, well, if that's the case, Ned, if you really take that seriously, then how about the fact that there are three male pups and two female pups just like your kids and that this <laughs> sigil matches the sigil of your house? Like, it, it, he's kind of being put to the test. That's like how I think about the relationship between these two scenes. It's like... Okay, Ned, you're expressing your values in this execution with Garrett. You're, you're setting up this whole scene as a teachable moment for Bran. Well, okay, now you're being put to the test. What are your values and ethics now that you're being faced with this different opportunity to choose between mercy and justice? So, you know, this, that, like he was setting up a teachable moment for Bran, and now that's a teachable moment for him. Now he's in this unexpected situation where he has to decide what his values really are and whether he really meant any of the stuff he was saying to Bran. 
And the fact that it's a dire wolf ties that right back into his stark identity that he was saying to Bran is the font of his beliefs about justice and, and morality and how you function as a leader. So yeah, I do, there's, there's, I think, fascinating parallels between these two scenes. And I think he does, it's such a great idea to have them follow right on each other to kind of force all the yeah. characters in question uh, to, to re-examine the values and ideas that we're talking about. Yeah, those are those are all really great points about um, the dynamic that that's going on with Ned killing this guy and then having being faced with the whole decision about whether to kill these dire wolves and and deciding on mercy at the end. And it's a really and I think it's a fantastic catch to that Ned is operating under the same set of principles that he expounds on to Bran after killing Garrett in the story. So I think it's a great catch. Um, that interaction between Ned and Bran and then the outcome being seen in Ned sparing the dire wolves isn't the only really awesome way that Martin plays with this this chapter two. He also does a great job of contrasting his two quote-unquote sons, that being Rob and John. Um these two guys are of, of an age, is, is what we know from the books, or, or actually I think we actually know that from Sos, from a Sosbake Martin. And um, But yeah, what do you think about the duality between Rob and John? Yeah, it's a hammered upon idea in this chapter that Rob and John are kind of archetypal opposites. That they describe John is graceful and quick while Rob is strong and fast. John has the look, has the stark coloring, Rob has the, the Tully coloring. Uh, Rob is kind of uh, cheerful and very outgoing and charismatic, whereas John is kind of more inward and reserved and quiet. Rob thinks that Garrett died well. John thinks that he was dead of fear on the inside. You, which is, uh, first of all, it's a great way to introduce these two characters, not in isolation, but having them play off each other, so you get a strong sense of both. Uh, I think it's, again, as as a, as a Stannis fan, to bring this back to the point, <laughs> I think. There's a definite parallel to the Robert Stannis dynamic between yes. between these two characters, quite right down to Rob having the same name as Robert, basically. That you have Robert as, as the charismatic, outgoing, beloved, but not hugely insightful one of the two, whereas Stannis is the more kind of inward, reserved, and kind of grim, but also arguably the kind of more intelligent and depthful of the two. And I think you can see that dynamic. And Martin might have had that might have been looking back at this scene when he was conceiving of Stannis's character for the next book and conceiving of how Stannis thought about Robert. I, I, I have no no evidence of that, but I, 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 I suspect that might be what he's trying to do here. And of course you have John and Stannis compared directly by Melisandre in A Dance with Dragons, so I think it's a really apt comparison. Go on, sorry to interrupt. Absolutely. Just, just no, no, I, it's a great moment. Melisandre says, yeah, the... What does she say? Like, yeah, her king and the Lord Commander have more in common than they would ever bring themselves to admit, which is just, just a great commentary <laughs> on both John and Stannis, that they would have this stuff in common, but both of them, neither of them would really be willing to acknowledge that, because that means feelings, Jeff, and emotions, and being vulnerable, and they can't stand that stuff. I don't trust those. So, can't have those, those, can't have those. So... <laughs> But yeah, I think the, the John Rob dynamic, like I said, it's a great way to set up these these two characters, introduce them as as kind of opposites of each other. Uh, you also have uh, Theon showing up just as a little bit briefly in this scene, and established as this kind of irreverent, dickish, glib person. John refers yep. to him as an ass when Theon kicks Garrett's head away. Uh, so you have that kind of yeah, you have this 
interesting angle and interplay among the older Stark boys that sets up their characters very well. And again, very just kind of naturally. Like, again, no one... There's the classic storytelling thing where it's... You don't want your characters saying, as you know, to each other. And then they just list a bunch of details <laughs> that we need to know, but they would never say to each other because everybody already knows them. And I think this chapter does a great job of avoiding that. It just shows the characters interact. And the the direct expositional stuff makes sense because it's coming from Ned trying to teach Bran about something directly. So it doesn't feel yeah. forced out of nowhere. It's just Ned explaining what happened in, in terms of trying to educate his son. And education and growth and maturity... Is definitely a running theme in this chapter that you see Bran struggling hard to keep up and be like his brothers. You see Theon, who's older than any of them, acting less mature than any of them. Yep. And uh, and uh, it's, again, there's a lot of great dualities in this chapter. John versus Rob, the two executions, uh, mercy versus justice, adulthood versus uh, childhood. And again, this sense of, of the political plot and the magical plot kind of raging and competing with each other that... If you know, if I if I were to sum up the overall arc of this chapter within the larger context of the story, it's that Ned silences the magical plot by executing Garrod, but then the magical plot comes, it rears its head right back up, it comes right back with the direwolves, and like yeah. the, the magical plot will not be silenced, and it's going to play a huge part. And even as most of the book is concerned with the more political, secular stuff, that that this the metaphysical, apocalyptic, mystical side of things is going to be there. It's going to be running around at your feet. It's going to be eating the scraps beneath your table. It's, 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 it's part of the Stark's lives uh, immediately. And, and I think establishing... It's, it's good to important to establish these character dynamics so then each of them get their own direwolves, and that kind of emphasizes who they are as individuals. But the direwolves are also there as a constant reminder of the, of the crazy, magical stuff going around just around the edges of this story. It's really cool how Martin does that. He puts magic at the margins of the story, and but sometimes in these moments he brings it right into the fore. And here at the fore, it's with the direwolves showing up, and getting that connection to a that they're getting that connection to the idea that magic exists in the world through literal direwolves, which according to the chapter haven't been seen south of the wall in two hundred years, is a great way to establish that magic is here even though the rest of Westeros is trying to kill it off, you know, with Ned killing Garrod, or if you believe in the Grand Maester conspiracy at some level of trying to kill off magic and dragons and all that sort of stuff, which of course we'll get into as we get progress farther and farther into the story itself. But yeah, it's it's a great um way that to to talk about the theme of, of magic and that magic is returning in the world. And it's 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 something else that it's done without a whole lot of exposition that that Martin just allows the reader to draw their own conclusions. You know, he trusts us as as readers to to kind of get it, so to speak. Amen, brother. Now we've talked uh, a lot about everything we've liked about this chapter. I've talked about the the imagery, the interesting conversations, the themes, the the fascinating ways it relates slash doesn't relate to what happened in the prologue. Uh, but let's uh, and you can we can get more from you about what else you liked about this chapter if we haven't brought it up, but let's let's delve briefly into what we don't like about the chapter, what we think doesn't work. And I think a lot of what I do dislike in this early, this first book, is that you do get sense, hints of what's what's known as early installment weirdness, where yes. George R. R. Martin hadn't quite figured out what he was doing with certain characters or certain ideas, wasn't hugely comfortable with this new world. So some of the writing feels stiff, 
and some of the character stuff feels like it gets dropped later on and isn't really connected to who these characters develop. Uh, for me, uh, the primary example of that is John. Uh, I think Jon Snow has gradually become one of my favorite characters in the series. I think by the time you get to dance, he's really fascinating in terms of the ideals he's trying to fight for, but being constantly dragged back into his memories of home and his Stark identity. The duality between trying to be Lord Commander, but also trying to be a Stark, I think is really interesting. But in this first book, I think he's... I think I get the sense that Martin hadn't quite figured out what he wanted to do with him because a lot of his dialogue in this chapter feels very kind of writerly and inauthentic. Uh, <laughs> he's he's emo in a way that doesn't quite work for me. Uh, not that John, of course, John has every reason to feel sad and unhappy about what his station in life is, but the prose itself for me comes off a little forced. Uh, and he and there's certain things like his. His skill of observation is brought up a lot in the early part of this first book. Uh, that you get to see it in this chapter. He's, he's his skills are brought up. They have the metaphor of ghosts' eyes being open while the rest of the pups are being blind. He talks himself in his first POV chapter about how bastards have to learn to see through things, and that's really not brought up at all in his later books. To the extent that I think this feels like it was a character trait that Martin realized wasn't really working and he couldn't do much with, so he he dropped it. So for me, that's, much as I love pretty much everything about this chapter, that is one aspect that doesn't quite work for me coming back to it. John feels a little stiff, a little forced, and like Martin hadn't quite figured out what he wanted to do with his character. Where it's, like Ned, for example, seems uh, fully formed in this chapter, that his, his ideas, what makes him interesting as a character, are all right there on the page. John, for me, hadn't quite got the handle on it yet. And that might get, you know, John is a very tropey character in many respects. Maybe Martin hadn't quite figured out how he wanted to relate to the tropes he was playing with. But for me, that's my primary dislike in this chapter. Yeah, it's it's interesting in that Martin has talked about how when he was writing a Game of Thrones, the Ned chapters just really flowed from from his, from his I guess, his typewriter at the time or, or his computer, whatever he was using when he was writing a Game of Thrones. Um, and you can really see that because he has, because he has Dead Stark established very early on and he has a very clear idea of where he's going to take Ned whereas John yeah the dialogue is not super doesn't flow well it is stiff and you know I'm gonna say this that some of the John stuff throughout a Game of Thrones is not really my favorite in terms of the dialogue you have some great lines that John has and John's chapters I really enjoy but John himself doesn't really I don't start to gravitate towards John until a clash of kings when he when he gets north of the wall and those chapters are where I think John's real character is revealed especially when he refuses to execute Egret and um, when he has the chance to and I think that's those those are the places that I start to really gravitate towards John's characters and and it, it tends to to go forward from there I agree. I think John really becomes interesting as a character once you get to the ethical struggles he faces beyond the wall with Egret, with Corrin Halfhand, with being a spy in Mance's army. And yeah, in the in this first book, it, it, every most of his lines for me in A Game of Thrones feel like they're being fed to him by George R. R. Martin. Like yeah. they don't feel like he's a, he's an organic character coming up with things to say. It feels like it's the author saying, "Okay, this is what this the sullen bastard with a lot of potential says in this moment." Like here's here's yep. here's the archetypal thing to say, John. So say it. He doesn't. You feel with a character like Ned or Tyrion or Catelyn in this first book that they're they're fully formed immediately. Everything they say fits within this clear, powerfully presented psychology on the page. And John feels just a little 
cardboard cutout-ish. He just, he feels... Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with an, un, an unfiltered archetype. It's not like you can't do great things with that. I mean, Barristan Selmy is a lot of fun to read, and he is his archetypals that come. But it just, <laughs> it doesn't feel... John doesn't... I guess what I'm saying is John doesn't really feel like a character to me at this point in this first book. He feels like a stand-in for a character be character to be determined later. He's just kind of a placeholder. Like, you know you need him there. Or like or like Dany feels yeah. so well fleshed out in this first book in terms of what her motivations are, what she's afraid of, what she's yes. thinking. Uh, she's already can already tell Martin understands her character completely. John, I feel like he, he Oh yeah. He could have used another pass. It just it's it's reminds it's like it's like it's like it's kind of like fanfic to be honest. Like someone who like really likes Tamora Pierce's coming of age <laughs> stories decided to try to write one of those, and it, it's just not quite. It's it doesn't ring true for me, especially especially in regards to where Martin goes later with the character in, in much more interesting directions. Coming back to it, I would say John is overall for me the the weak the weak spot of this first book of a Game of Thrones. Absolutely agree. I could talk about the things I like, but I've, I've talked about them enough. The one thing that I'll, I'll just say that I did not necessarily like, and this is going to be something that's also going to be recurring in the game of Thrones. And that's the Theon Rob friendship. Um, it becomes really crucial in twisting the knife in the Starks back in a clash of Kings, but I don't feel it's very well established in a game of Thrones in this chapter. You don't have Rob and Theon really interacting at all. They're in the same location. They're not like, joking around or you know one of them's punching the other one in the arm sort of thing or the other thing or the, the way that you know friends would 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 be and, and would do and that does have a bit of an impact on me because when i get to a clash of kings and i see that theon is now being crafted into this guy who's going to the iron islands to bring the ironborn to rob's cause then he betrays rob and then he goes sax winterfell or allegedly sax winterfell he takes Winterfell. Um, I, I just don't get a really a clear sense that Martin was writing with this in mind at this at this juncture in a Game of Thrones. And you know the character Theon, I don't think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he doesn't appear in Martin's original letter um, to his his agent where he was explaining what the, the story was going to be. If I'm not mistaken, am I right in that? I, as far as I can recall, there's no Greyjoys in that initial pitch letter, that that family uh, was completely absent from Martin's original conception of the story. Yeah, I'm, I, we could be wrong about that. If there's any Greyjoy in there, it's probably Theon. But from what I recall yeah. from the pitch letter he wrote uh, in the early 90s, yeah, Theon is someone, a character he came up with as he started writing that first book, as he, as he went back to and did several more drafts. It's He's not part of the initial, initial pitch. And I completely agree, you can kind of tell... In this first book, he hadn't fully fleshed out Theon. And yeah, yeah the Rob-Theon dynamic, once you mentioned that to me uh, in the, the build-up to this episode, I went back and took a look. And yeah, there's really, it's really strikingly not there on the page. They just kind of refer to it later. It, yeah. It's not, we're not shown it, we're just told it. And part of me, I've always thought like, this is one of the areas where aging up the Starks on the show worked really well because it kind of yeah. made sense for Rob and Theon to be friends. But if you think about it, for the most part, 19-year-olds and 14-year-olds in the real world are not best friends. And no. it would be kind no. of weird for them to be best friends. I'm not judging. Like, if you're 19, your best friend's 14, that's cool. But that's not common, and it just doesn't... It's it, it would, it's kind of weird for me to visualize this, like, this cocky, arrogant, woman's man seducing 19-year-old whose best friend is five years younger than him. It's just It just strikes me as a little yeah. off. 
And maybe that's maybe Martin tried to explore that and ran into that problem. Uh, maybe, or maybe he just you know this is just a mistake he made and wasn't thinking about that friendship being super important in later installments. But yeah, the Rob Theon dynamic is something that is mostly just kind of alluded to in later books. It's not something we actually actually arguably do a better job with it in the show because again, they're the actors are roughly the same age, so visually it makes sense. Yeah, Richard Madden and Alfie Allen playing Rob Stark and Theon Greyjoy have a a, a friendship chemistry on on set that you can you can see, and you know you have really cool scenes which help establish Theon a, a, a lot better, I think, in the show. So that when you get to his arc in season two, you're like you, there is real pathos in Theon burning the letter, which is something we talked about before we went on air, and in Theon taking Winterfell and executing Roger Cassell. These are these are things that the show works really well to establish in season one, the friendship between Rob and Theon. And so when Theon betrays Rob in season two, it really does feel that the knife is being twisted and Rob Stark and the rest of the Starks is back. So that's just something that that's going to be a recurring thing I, I might bring up from time to time about them that I'm not really feeling the Theon Rob friendship that becomes really important in the Clash of Kings and in Game of Thrones. But, you know, these, these things we talk about in our dislikes are not story-killing um, things, right? We're, we're not talking about, oh, well, this makes the story dumb or stupid or, or something that we're not willing to go on reading, which, you know, given the fact that we reread the story, you know, 10 billion times at this point in our lives, I think that, that should be clear. But just in case people are wondering, we, are, we only bring up the things we dislike because we... We want to provide a balanced picture, you know, of, of the things that we're looking at in, in, in a Game of Thrones. And and uh, that's part of, of looking at a balanced picture is, is talking about things that we, we don't necessarily like a whole lot and providing some feedback as to why some things in our mind work or some things don't work. Absolutely. And it's that's not a like you said, it's not a fatal flaw, not a condemnation. And part of it is stuff that gets better later. I mean, like we said, John becomes a much more interesting character as he goes along and it's just interesting to compare characters at different points in the story and see how the writing process has changed and see where Martin has changed his mind and dropped some things but yeah these are just you know little little nitpicks little little flakes of paint falling away from the overall masterpiece there's there's nothing nothing majorly wrong here nothing that destabilizes the story or hurts the good parts really now, the uh, well, something we haven't really talked about over the course of this episode is the POV from whom we are witnessing all of this. The, the point of view character of this chapter is, of course, Bran Stark, who I will argue is the closest thing we have to a central protagonist in this story. That's, that's certainly a contentious, contentious thing to say, a bold statement to quote from Pulp Fiction. And obviously <laughs> there, is no, there is no one defining protagonist uh, in this story. There's, there's no Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker or Frodo Baggins. There's no obvious clear protagonist. You can There's aspects of Jon Snow or Daenerys that, that would audition them for that role, but if I had to go for one, I would say Bran. Uh, he's the most connected to the magical plot. He's got kind of the most classic Arthurian hero's journey of any character. Uh, he's probably as we see the series develop, the most metaphysically powerful character of any of the POV characters in terms of his abilities and what he can do with them. He's tied into the other plot pretty pretty quickly. His relationship to Winterfell is this very kind of deep, sacred, intuitive thing that kind of transcends every other character's relationship to the castle. 
Uh, he's, you know, he's a, a, a young kid going on a journey, going, facing through difficulties, losing companions. It's very Joseph Campbell. It's very, very Arthurian, like I said. And he's the first POV. He's, he's the, our opening, our opening chapter past the prologue in the series comes to us from Bran Stark. So for me, that kind of establishes him at the center. And if I think of any one character at the center of the story, it is him. Having yeah, said that, he's totally. not... The reason we haven't kind of brought him up so far is he doesn't really do a lot in this chapter. He's kind of just there soaking everything in. He's witnessing the execution, and then he's uh, they discover the direwolves, and he just he kind of puts up a fight, but it's really John who convinces Ned to spare them. And I think it's interesting what you said about Martin having kind of difficulty writing Bran because he's both a kid and kind of a, a super high fantasy character. So do you want to expand on that a little more? It's it's difficult, I think, in part in Martin's mind. Because Martin Brunt has talked about A Song of Ice and Fire at various points in, in the years past interviews as being a low fantasy series, which I would maybe dispute a little bit in that there are high fantasy elements in the story, especially as the as A Song of Ice and Fire progresses, the high fantasy elements become much more pronounced in, in the story. Um, but regardless of of the veracity of, of what Martin has been talking about, that as a low fantasy epic, um, he does have a really difficult time in writing Bran, but he also has difficulty writing John and Daenerys as well. And the reason why he talks about one of the reasons why he talks about having difficulty in writing these characters is because they're connected to magic, and some of the elements of of magic we at this juncture of the story you do kind of wonder how much of it is. Martin is not quite fleshed out, fleshed them out, and he ends up fleshing them out over time. But the other aspect, too, about Bran is he, is that he's a kid. He's witnessing things that most adults don't witness. He's seeing an execution for the first time. And that's a really interesting dynamic in that you have this eight-year-old kid thrust into a super adult situation, right? You wouldn't even most adults in the modern world would never see something like this. But here Bran is as a future bannerman, bannerman to his brother Rob, seeing an execution and having instruction on why that Bran might be the one who needs to wield the sword in the future. It's really difficult for Bran to experience that. And, you know, Martin has to is thrust Bran into these very adult situations throughout his arc. You have Bran the next chapter you know, witnessing Cersei and Jaime up in the tower in Winterfell. And then you have him experiencing blood raven and dreams and being, um, being broken and all these different really terrible and hard things to write about. But the thing about it is that he has to write, Martin has to write Bran as a kid. He's, he's not going to write Bran as an eight year old kid having 30 year old thoughts, you know, or having much, having adult thoughts. He has to write him as, as a kid and that does have an impact. You know, it's it's difficult for Martin to write it, but you do see elements where where, where George goes in and says, okay, he's a kid. How What would a kid think about this? And one of my favorite little lines about in this chapter itself is where Bran is sitting next to Rob, or rather sitting next to John at the execution of Garrett, and he thinks, quote, John is an old-handed justice at 14. And that's a really interesting way of thinking about it as an eight-year-old because that makes sense. You know, an eight-year-old might think like a fourteen-year-old is a is a you know a big adult now. He's a he's almost a man grown is one of the lines that that John and Rob throw around about themselves because they're almost a man grown at fourteen years old. 
but they're not really, you know, to us now as, you know, super serious adults, but, um, as, as readers, that is, so, so it's a, it's a really interesting, uh, way that Martin writes is that he has to write these point of view characters from their point of view. Daenerys is a 13 year old girl. Bran is eight years old. Arya is seven. No, Arya is nine. Sansa is 10 or God damn it. Sansa is 11. John is 14. So he has to write these perspectives of people who are in their their childhood, in their preteen years, or in their teenage years. And he, I think for the most part he succeeds, although we'll see some stuff in some of the Sansa chapters where maybe he does not succeed as well in some of the stuff in Danny, Danny's chapters as well, because he does, as much as we love George, and this will become probably some criticisms from us, he doesn't sometimes do the best job of writing from the perspective of 13 and 14-year-old girls. But regardless of all that... We, we will, uh, I think he does for the most part, he does a great job. And in Brand's chapter, that whole John is an old handed justice line just strikes me as, as good writing on Martin's part of writing Brand as a real kid, not just as some kid who has, you know, adult thoughts. He has kid thoughts and that's a cool way of writing it. Absolutely. That's something I love about Brand too, is that he's not quite old enough to grasp the import of what's going on around him. And that can make for some... I can make for frustrating moments, certainly, but it can make for some really interesting, poignant moments. Like, my favorite example is from the Storm of Swords chapter, where Mira is telling him the story of the Night of the Laughing Tree. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a Princess Bride thing, where, like, the point is that the kid doesn't quite get why this is important, or why he should care about any of this. And he, he like, he has that line at the end, like, oh, that that was a good story, but it, it should have been more traditional and high fantasy in all these little <laughs> ways. Like, it should have been a much less interesting story, because those are the ones I'm used to. Like, he says, like, you know, the... The, the, the dragon prince should, you know, run off with the wolf maid or something like that. and Or like what he says, like, yeah, the wolf maid should have been the queen of, of love and beauty. And Mira says she was, but but that's a sadder story. And yes. like Bran doesn't, doesn't, doesn't understand what he's just been told. That he's just been told the entire backstory to his family and to John and how <laughs> Westeros got to the way it is. He doesn't, we're supposed to get it, but he doesn't at all because he's a little kid. And that... You get some kind of terrifying moments later in his story where he doesn't really realize the extent of what he's doing to Hodor because, again, he's a small child and is just kind of freaked out and frightened and wants to walk again and doesn't really consider the horrifying ethical implications of taking over another person's brain and controlling their body like a puppet. Well, That's it's so like sad. if Bran was. It's so sad. If, if, like, if Bran. It would be a totally different story, though. And this is kind of a thing I have with the show. If Bran was a little older, if he was a teenager in doing that. Because then it's like Bran really should realize at some point exactly how horrifying this is if he's old enough, yeah. if he's Robert John's age. But if he's not, if he's seven to nine as he is in the series, it's plausible he doesn't really get what he's doing. And that, that adds yeah. a whole other layer of kind of sadness and creepiness to it. And I agree, you it know, it's, it's, difficult, it's difficult to write from a kid's perspective because you have to cut out things you as an adult automatically know and take for granted. And you have to kind of try to rest restore yourself back to that state. I think Martin overall does a really good job, and does a good job in this chapter of, like, Bran loses his temper and starts to cry when Ned brings up executing the direwolves. John has to help him, like, hold on to his horse. And, yeah, that line about John being an old-handed justice, even though he's only 14 himself. And, you know, Bran kind of worships all these people. He worships John and Rob yeah. and Ned, and the, there are larger-than-life figures to him that he defines himself by and wants to be like, and he wants them to be impressed with him. But as we learned, the, these these are all sad, broken people in their own way too. Like I mean, John is is constantly struggling at Winterfell to establish himself and feels like an outcast. And 
And Ned, I mean, Ned is just a pile of psychoses unto himself of, of the <laughs> stuff he's gone through and has repressed and feels traumatic about. Like he, oh, yeah. he is constantly being haunted by his ghosts and brought back to the time when he too was young and vulnerable. And so we're, we're introduced to them from Bran's eyes as kind of these tall people he's just looking up at and they are looming over him and they define everything he knows. And then we gradually come to understand that they're not from the, from the inside when we get POVs from, from John and Ned and eventually Theon, that they're not that way at all, that they're in, in their own ways as vulnerable and scared and don't know what to do almost as much as he is. And the, the only difference is, is he has he has superpowers and they don't. But there's no re, there's no real hint of that yet in this chapter. Uh, he's not just yet. he's 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 kind of an audience surrogate in that he's not even audience surrogate, but he's he's a character that has to be explained things, which is very useful because we need to have things explained to us as we get into this chapter. But it's it's he's not he's not like Ariel Hoda. He's not like a, just a complete window onto this world. He does have his own kind of thoughts and ideas, kind of inflecting it. And they are, as you say, kind of tied into what it means to process these events through the eyes of a child, uh, someone who is, is yeah. struggling to look older than they really are and is, whose maturity and growth has just begun. And I think that does that is what makes Bran an interesting character. Like, his, his child POV might not be interesting on his own. The events he goes through might be less interesting seen through an adult's eyes. It's the collision between his POV and the stuff he's seeing. Like you say, a child seeing very adult mm-hmm. things. I think that's what defines Bran Stark. Yeah, it, Bran as, as a child seeing adult things is a very prevalent theme, especially in the Game of Thrones. But as you say in Storm of Swords, in the Night of the Laughing Tree story, you see that being much more pronounced. And that becomes a recurring theme, and it's great, and it's a good way of, of writing the story. Um, but one of the things that is, that's interesting about this chapter is, man, this chapter is just flowing with foreshadowing and groundwork for the rest of the series. And we have like so many freaking notes about things that come up in throughout A Song of Ice and Fire that get referenced in this brand chapter. But I think uh, I was really curious about a note you have in our document here about stag and wolf symbolism and how that works as groundwork for the rest of the story. Sure. It's one of the most interesting moments in the chapter when they find out that what they find this antler that has, has killed uh, Mom and Dire Wolf. Uh, and is, is, uh, has, has left her, 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 her babes orphans, which is how we get to the situation where the Starks discover them and adopt them. And, uh, of course, we don't know it at the time, but the, that, that is a very heavily symbolically loaded image of, of, a, of a stag killing a direwolf, given the sigil of House Baratheon, the royal house, the head of which, Robert Baratheon, is Ned's king and best friend. So this, you know, the direwolf and the stag are allies. So the image of stag and direwolf fighting each other brutally and, and getting killed is is an intense and ominous one. And I love that when when that antler is revealed, everyone goes quiet and everyone's looking at it and everyone's very uncertain and nervous. And Bran has no idea why. Again, another great moment of the child's POV. And I love that because it's not just, it's not symbolism for us because we don't know what it means yet. We haven't been introduced to House Baratheon. We don't know that that's their sigil. It's a moment of symbolism being noticed by the characters. Like the characters are like in universe going, oh, that's 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 some foreshadowing right there. I don't like what this means for where our story <laughs> is going. Um, and that ties into how one of the things I like best about the series is the extent to which the characters engage with stories and songs and images and, you know, all these things that the that we as readers are engaging with, but they too are engaging with them because, you know, our world is built out of things like that. There's no iron wall separating real life from stories and songs. Both, they inform each other constantly. Life is always imitating art, and art is always imitating life. 
And I think this is a great little moment of that where for a moment the characters understand that they're characters in a story and what this image could possibly mean for them going forward. That it's, it's this such a blatant moment of symbolism that they react to. Or um, uh, the John bringing up the number of direwolves. That's another kind of very meta moment of like John stepping into the story to analyze it and say, no, Lord Edward, these direwolf pups represent your children because it's the same number and the same gender hmm. as them. So, and and the sig it's the sigil of your house. So this is clearly the author intervening to send something important to you and we have to take it seriously. And I love that, that it's, you know, it's again, gets into the idea of this chapter of, of, of dealing with power as opposed to the powerlessness of the prologue that, that you have this kind of authority yeah. in characters who understand what they're looking at, unlike the characters in the prologue who didn't understand what the others were, naturally, because no one had seen them in millennia. But you have these characters kind of involved with this struggle with the images and ideas around them and, and what the symbolism could mean for their fates. And uh, and I and I love it, of course, as just overall foreshadowing of the, the wars to come, that you're going to have these allies turning on allies, the, the, the main houses of Westeros, fighting with each other, all, all encapsulated, and, and they're going to leave, the children of Westeros are going to be helpless orphans at the end of all this. And that's, you see that all in that kind of, that, that stag wolf fighting it out. Yeah, for sure. What's also really cool, too, is that this type of foreshadowing and groundwork that Martin integrates into this brand chapter is something that you would only pick up in a reread itself, because you would have to go back and read brand one, having known what happens to the Starks, in a Game of Thrones, in a Clash of Kings, in a Storm of Swords, and even at the end with a Dance with Dragons, to know that this has very symbolic import to the story and very thematically, uh, very it has a lot of thematic foreshadowing for what's going to happen to House Stark uh, as as we progress forward. Um, the the and on that same vein, one of the things that I noticed in this chapter was that the animal avatars of the royal families all come into existence all of these species of animals that we that the this the characters think are extinct or don't exist they become very present and they become part of the story so the direwolves the house the sigil of house stark they come into the story at the beginning of a game of thrones but then at the very end of a game of thrones danny's three dragons the sigil of house targaryen come in at the end and i do wonder if there is a bit of symbolism of a magical connection between the Starks and the direwolves and whether that symbolizes magic and the same thing goes for Danny and her three dragons symbolizing um, the house Targaryen and the Valyrian connection to magic as well. So you have these opposite ends of fire, ice and fire being born out here in this, at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story. And I really think that's something that Martin did intentionally if, as, I, as I'm reading through it this time around. Oh yeah, I agree. I hadn't noticed that until you brought it up, but I think that was probably definitely a deliberate parallel on his part i mean you have the first chapter first couple chapters of the story dealing with ice and then the end of the story dealing with fire and hey that's the title of the series so yeah i definitely think that's <laughs> a deliberate move on his part to have this kind of interesting interplay where you have the sigils that are just supposed to be purely metaphorical like especially in the stark's case like they're not literally direwolves they don't ride into battle on direwolves we haven't seen direwolves in hundreds of years but now it's now it's being made very literal it's being it's the, 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 the symbol is becoming a real thing that you have to deal with in the real world. And yeah, you have Dany struggling with that with the dragons as well. Like, I mean, Dany's, one of the things I love best about Dany's characterization is uh, what a hard time she has training the dragons and trying to feed them and understand how they work and, like, take care of them. Like, she has no, 
she has no inherent understanding of what to do with them, even though they're on her sigil and on her flag, and so she should be able to control them, but she can't. And I think, you know, emphasized in this chapter that the direwolves, as adorable as they are, are, you know, are extremely vicious, violent, dangerous animals that if you, as Ned says, if you mistreat them, they're not going to be like a dog and just slink away. They're going to rip your arm off. Yep. And that's something you have to take very, very seriously. And that's the, the direwolves, it's not just a nice picture floating on our banners in the breeze. It's a very real animal that you have to struggle to work with. And I think that's... I think that's something that's really interesting, and like you say, a definite parallel with Dany. Uh, you had some also some interesting ideas in terms of foreshadowing and groundwork about uh, about ghosts' red eyes and how it uh, how it connects to the North and connects to some of the blood imagery in this chapter. Did you want to go into that? Yeah. So one of the interesting parts about this chapter is that at the very end of the chapter, John hears, even though no one else hears it, um, what becomes ghost still crying back at his at his mother's side and he goes back he rides back and he comes back and he, he Bran sees the uh, direwolf that becomes ghost and he notices that his eyes are open his eyes are red and red eyes are very interesting in this in the song of ice and fire is that they tend to symbolize they can symbolize any number of things but one of the interesting connections in the north, particularly, is that red eyes are also seen in weirwood trees, whereas the where the weirwoods have the red leaves and they have the red sap that flows out of them, and the Northmen have carved faces into the trees, and the and the faces have red eyes in them. So they seem to symbolize the North and the old gods. That is the red eyes, and that payoff is really borne out in *A Storm of Swords*. When John is considering Stannis' offer of the Stark name and the Lordship of Winterfell, and he's going back and forth about it, and he he starts to think that, well, maybe I should do this because, you know, gods forgive me, I must become Lord Stark. This thing is something that he's, he says towards the end, until he sees Ghost, when Ghost comes south of the wall, and he sees Ghost for the first time in, I think, about 11 chapters in that by that time. And then he thinks to himself, quote, Red eyes, John realized, but not like Melisandre's. He had Werewood's eyes, red eyes, red mouth, white fur, blood and bone like a heart tree. He belongs to the old gods, this one, and he alone of all the direwolves was white. Six pups they'd found in the late summer snows, him and Rob, five that were gray and black and brown for the five Starks, and one white, as white as snow. And that, to me, is talking about the connection that John is going... That, to me, is talking about the conflict that John is going to have throughout the five-book narrative that we have so far, and is likely going to continue into The Winds of Winter and beyond, where John is always struggling about his identity and who he is. But in the end, it really feels like that ghost is going to be that connective tissue that will always tie John to the North, and that's something that's really borne out in this chapter, and then it sees a bit of conclusion in a storm of swords, not a full conclusion as we're going to find out, but John is, is connected to the North and ghost is that visible symbol of his connectivity to the North itself. I, I couldn't have put it any better myself, brother. Really well said. I think that's exactly right. That moment with ghost in a storm of swords is one of my favorite moments in John's story. It's so, uh, just so overwhelmingly emotional and you can yeah. really see him deciding who he is and who he wants to be in this memory of his family. And yeah, that's, that feeling of being set apart yet also still part of it is, is connected right from the beginning. Ghost is part of the family, but he's an albino and his, his, his eyes are open 
and only John could hear him. So that kind of in-between, neither in nor out status is uh, is something that torments John, and but also makes him who he is throughout the series. And I think you definitely see that reflected in Ghost. And yeah, you can, as you said in that, in that quote, it's Martin grounds that connection and that feeling in Ghost's red eyes, and how that's how that makes marks him out as separate from the rest of the group. Uh, speaking oh, speaking of eyes, there's an interesting interesting phrase from Rob that I hadn't noticed before that you caught. Uh, the others take your eyes, used as a curse by Rob. So I wonder wonder what that could mean. Yeah. So it, it was it was interesting because I was reading this and I Rob says this quick line: "The others take your eyes." And it's a really short phrase that Rob says, and I, and I was I'm, I'm reading it, and we had just finished the prologue chapter, and I kind of stopped and put the book down. I'm like, oh God, Martin, I, that, that it's so clear now because at the very end of the prologue chapter, you have you have Will seeing Waymar rise, and he sees that Waymar's eyes are blue, that his eyes have been that the gray eyes of of Sir Waymar Royce have been replaced by the blue eyes that burned bright, and that the eyes that hated. And that's it feels to me like it's some sort of um, I don't know how you would say it. it. It feels like a almost like a historical memory of the long night and what the others do in taking the eyes of their victims and replacing them with the blue eyes there. So I was uh, I think we'll see a couple other things, too, about the others and children. And um, what's the what's the what's the curse that that Robert Baratheon always says? Uh, the others take your eyes. Oh, yeah, damn your eyes, or take your eyes, rot your eyes, something like that. It's some, it's connected somehow to that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it it feels like that that Martin is is emphasizing some sort of historical connectivity between something that happened millennia ago that has been translated throughout history as as that becomes a curse, and the others take your eyes, see, seeming to be that uh, interesting connection there. Um, but it, when we get back to talking about Rob a little bit, there is something interesting that you had pointed out in, in the notes where you're talking about that there's the execution scene that we see in the very beginning has a bit of, um, almost becomes a touchstone for some of the major characters that we're going to be encountering throughout the series. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Sure. I mean, absolutely. As we've been saying throughout this chapter, it's a very kind of primal scene that flows into the rest of the series. So many of the ideas and moods and character stuff that we see throughout the books very much flows from this chapter. And one thing I think is interesting is how all the characters in this scene kind of replay this execution scene later in their careers. When, as Rob and John and Theon get older, as they sort of take hold of the power and authority that Ned has that defines this chapter, they too have these powerful execution scenes. You have Rob who executes Rickard Karstark, and 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 he J- Jane even brings up. Jane Westerling, his wife, brings up that Rob could have had a headsman, and Catelyn says, brings us back to the scene and says, no, that's not the way of the Starks, that's not the way of the First Men. They believe the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword, and you can Rob just is kind of traumatized by what he had to do, but still believes in it ethically, and you can see that link to this to this scene. Uh, you have John who executes Jano Slint for the exact purpose of, of betraying his Night's Watch oaths. So that kind of links back again to the ideas brought up about oath-breaking and what that will lead you to do in this scene, and you have Theon who executes Farlin, and it's it's a delib- that execution is so deliberately even Theon thinking to himself, this is not how Ned Stark would have done it. Like it's pathetic. He has to hit him like three times with the sword. Uh, no one is impressed by it. Yeah. Theon even o- Theon forgets to do it himself until Farlin reminds him how Ned Stark would do it. So you have that connection <laughs> to the this kind of defining struggle within Theon's character where he 
wants to hate the Starks but can't quite bring himself to do it. He wants to believe that Ned was his enemy but still is constantly comparing himself to Ned in his head. Uh, and you have John and Rob who are always kind of trying to live up to their father and their image of him and how he conducted himself as he does in this chapter. And you, you can, again, that's a sign of what makes this such a great opening chapter uh, for the series is that you can you can draw, you bring everything back to it and you can just see how just the ripple effects from what was done here just cascade down for all these characters. And of course for Ned himself, his story ends this way. It begins and ends with an execution. It starts with him wielding ice yes. and ends with ice being wielded against him. And that's, you can kind of trace his whole arc <laughs> in between those two moments where he goes from being the executioner to the executed. And that's, I can't think of a better way of framing Ned's downfall than that, really. Yeah, that is a really great way of, of looking at it. And, you know, it, it's it's a cool, you know, that you have that, that George Lucas line. It's like poetry. It rhymes when he's talking about the Phantom Menace. But it does, in A Song of Ice and Fire, these events that are occurring early in, in the story have ramifications and have echoes throughout the rest of the story and different characters' point of views. And, and I think that's a really solid point. Um, the only the final catch that I have relates to the, the one you were just talking about is that right after um, Ned kills Garrod, Bran has this this line that kind of caught my attention. It's quote, Bran cannot take his eyes off the blood. The snows around the stump drank it eagerly, reddening as he watched. And this caught my, my attention because, again, if you go to the very the final Bran chapter, the final published Bran chapter that we have so far in The Dance with Dragons, Bran has these visions that start spinning backwards as he's in Bloodraven's cave. And he the final vision that he has is of an execution. And this execution has some interesting verbiage that seems very suspiciously connected to this whole idea of about the stump drinking the blood. And that's um so they the he's seeing sometime far in the past of outside of the outside of Winterfell with at the Heart Tree, and it says, quote and through the mists of centuries, the broken boy could only watch as the man's feet drummed against the earth. But as his life flowed out of him in a red tide, Brandon Stark could taste the blood. That, to me, seems to talk about the blood sacrifice that goes into the old gods, something that's brought up repeatedly in A Dance with Dragons. And getting this hint early on in the story of the stump drinking the blood works to connect that seen very early on to what we come to discover about the the old gods and the religion of the old gods and the the practice of of blood sacrifice as horrific as it is and as horrific as Bran feels it in that final Bran chapter it was something that had perhaps perhaps it had power or perhaps it had power that people believed that people believed it had power Regardless, there does seem to be a connection between the two of, of blood sacrifice and of the werewoods and of trees drinking blood. As awful as it sounds, there there's that connectivity there, and it's uh, it's an interesting thing to, to ruminate on anyways. I agree. I think it's, it's one of the reasons I love that little moment is because it means such different things the first time through versus a reread. Because the first time through, that's just... That's a little moment that's about Bran's innocence, right? He's never seen this before. He's never seen someone killed, so he just he, the blood is just horrifying to him. It's just a completely new experience. But yeah, coming back to yeah. it, knowing where Bran's going, it feels very much like a foreshadowing of that he will, when, just like Ned will end the book on the other side of the sword, Bran will end, will not end his story, but continue his story on the other side of the stump, so to speak. He will be the one that drinks that blood mm -hmm. in instead of simply watching it spill. And it, I would argue it's kind of a link to what Ned is talking about in terms of 
you have to look in the guy's face, you have to swing the sword, you have to take the consequences. Bran is doing that in his own way, where he's taking on the consequences in that he has to drink the blood. He has to take in this kind of power from the execution that he doesn't want and doesn't want to experience. He says, you know, no, no, don't, when he's looking at that vision that you cited in Dance with Dragons. But as the as the godhead, as the person with the first men stark powers in his veins, he has to be the one to absorb that. And yeah, yes. I think you see this, that's, that's, that's a great link across his story. And I think, yeah, it establishes the, the preeminence of kind of blood magic and blood sacrifice in Bran's arc. Uh, and the overall kind of take on the old gods and the weirwoods, which is, as, as a slight sidebar, one reason I was I kind of roll my eyes at a lot of the hand wringing about R'hllor and the sacrifices that go along with that. Obviously, burning people alive is horrifying and is not something you should ever do. <laughs> but there is, there is no there is no good religion on this planet. There are no nice gods. All of the gods want your blood. The trees are just want your blood exactly as much as the fire does. Exactly as yes. much as the drowned god does. Like there are no, the, the old gods are not peaceful, nice hippie gods. They are metal. They are bloody faces and yes. trees who want to suck the life out of you. They are, they are not. He, even if even if the overall goal of the children and blood raven is to save the world, which I think it is, the costs that go along with that for me, it's it's for me that's a parallel to R'hllor, not a contrast. They're they're out to save the world, but this is what that looks like. This is what you're going to have to do along the way to do justice. And I, yeah, that that imagery of blood and trees and death in Bran's arc, I think, is definitely there to knit all that together. Yeah, it, it is, and it's it's something that should horrify us as as readers. I don't think that Martin is calling us to just simply accept that blood sacrifice is necessary and and that thus it makes it good, or that burning people to R'hllor is a good thing either, or anything like that. I don't think that's that's anything any that's that's what we're saying at all. But it it is something that we have to consider in the world as something that occurs and that has occurred in the past. And, you know, if, if you're a believer in that, that Jojen may have been sacrificed, that perhaps it, it has occurred once again, but it's something to look forward to in the winds of winter is, is seeing how that will play out a bit more in Bran's story. And as Bran discovers more and more about the old gods and the history of the North, the history that has been, um, not filtered through the through a maester's lens and through these kind of mythical stories that have been passed down from generate generation to generation and have lost some of its historical touchstone. But uh, it, it's it's going to be in interesting to see come the winds of winter how much Bran is going to be seeing of the North and of the religion of the old gods, how it was actually practiced by these historic Northmen. Um, and he's going to be seeing that in in Bloodraven's cave yes, uh, as as we we come to find out. And, and Bloodraven is such a freaking fascinating character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. But one of the interesting aspects about Bloodraven is a really cool theory that some people have put out about Bloodraven and the Direwolves. Do you want to talk a little bit about the about the theory that some people have put forward? Sure. So, yeah, we'll probably close up with the theory section here this week as we're going to be 10 to going forward. Uh, and there's nothing, <laughs> there's no huge overarching in, overarching interesting theory like the others being good guys that we have from last week but yeah there's an interesting little nugget that maybe maybe there's a reason this dire wolf got south of the wall for the first time in 200 years and maybe that's because it was sent we see blood raven uh, working through animals throughout the series we see blood raven using uh, agents and cat's paws like cold hands to work his will and we know blood raven is particularly interested in bran stark and particularly interested in 
opening Bran's third eye and kind of activating his magical powers. The direwolves seem very central to that. So maybe Bloodraven, maybe Bloodraven sent Mama Direwolf south. Maybe he warged into her or influenced her in some other way. And that would also fit Bloodraven's kind of brutal ends justify the means attitude of I will get creatures killed if it if I think it serves the greater good. He will sacrifice this Mama Direwolf and whoever with a stag she was fighting if if that's what I need to do to get my hands on the Messiah. And to tie it back into what we were just saying about uh, human sacrifice and, and all these religions. Certainly the point is not that human sacrifice becomes okay once you need it to save the world. The point is that committing human sacrifice is not something that just the evil people do. The people who want terrible things and are just nasty and one-dimensional. It's something that the people who want to save the world do. It's something that people with the best possible motivations and intentions do. And that's something we have to wrestle with. That the question is, you know, would I do that? Maybe. I think that's the position we're being meant to (laughs) understand with Stannis is that he's being put in the position where there's actually what seems like a justifiable reason to burn your daughter. And that's horrifying, but what if you were in that position? Like Ned asks himself at the end of this book, like, what would I do if it was my kids against other kids who were not of my body? Would I make the decision to kill them? I think it's introducing these profound ethical struggles to which there is no right answer, but the action itself being horrifying, I think, doesn't preclude those struggles. The point is to be able to not... You can't keep this stuff at arm's length and pretend that you wouldn't that you would have the answers and that you would know what to do. And the problem is that the characters are just evil or idiots. You you have to feel these dilemmas along with them. And I think that's that's something that's central to Blood Raven and why there's no real evidence that he sent the direwolf south. He doesn't bring it up to Bran or anything like when Bran gets to the cave. But I I, I think it's quite plausible that that, that Blood Raven was involved because it just it fits his character so well and he does want so much out of Bran. So it does fit. I totally agree that it's plausible, and, and I'd add a layer of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it tinfoil, I hope it's not tinfoil, because uh, we are kind of the anti-tinfoilers of, of this uh, Song of Ice and Fire community, but um, the idea that Bloodraven's cave is connected to a bunch of other caves, and uh, one of the caves being the uh, Gendelin Gorn's cave, the one that went under the wall, itself that allowed the wildlings to get past the night's watch without being detected before they were confronted by by the starks and the night's watch and they were destroyed but um the thing that i wonder is whether maybe blood raven sent the dire wolves through the series of tunnels that were running from blood raven's cave under the through gendel and gorn's cave and under the wall and then on on over to winterfell having warged um uh, having word Mama Direwolf. And that's something that, uh, again, our friend uh, Joe Magician has, has talked about uh, in that we he's talked about that. There is that Blood Raven has the ability to skin change ravens at seemingly. Why not? Why wouldn't he not have the ability to skin change or warg a direwolf? I think that's uh, that's something that is, is worth considering, even though there's no direct evidence of of that yet. But Hopefully, come wins or or the next book after we'll 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 get a bit more about that. I agree. I would I would go so far as to bet that's how Bran gets south from Blood Raven's cave. I know the show had him running back through the wild, through the surface world of the the trees and the snow. But I'm gonna go ahead and make my bet that uh, Gorn and Gendel's way, the caves underneath, is how Bran gets back south. What I would love is if he went all the way and just like popped up below Winterfell, just like emerged into the crypts. And then just like comes back into the surface, and like and that, and that's how he gets. And like no one saw it coming. I would. That's a scene I would just love to see happen. 
But yeah, I think that's that's an entirely plausible theory. You, you got the hair on my arm standing up now because I've never heard that before, but that's a fantastic idea. I would just love, especially since he hid down there in the crypts before at the end of Clash of Kings. That's when he was last in Winterfell. There would be a link to like, that's how he comes back up through it. Uh, but, you know, obviously it could totally not happen at all, but that's something I would I would adore to see happen. Anywho, the uh, oh, other other kind of theory that we have already kind of alluded to in this episode is the idea that the that the there will be a grand kind of loop, a grand kind of closing of the circle in the Song of Ice and Fire that just as Bran had the first chapter, that uh, he will he will have the last chapter as well, and the story will kind of close with him, and that that satisfies me for a bunch of different reasons. Again, my sense that Bran is kind of the central character, uh, his his far sight his third eye could allow him to have like a series of visions about what's coming next after the end of the series which i think would be a very interesting way to go out uh, a quite literal dream of spring if you will uh, he's a character who's connected yes. to brand the builder so maybe he could be rebuilding things at the end of the series like we could see him restoring winterfell at the close of the at the close of the series and uh, and you have that and even the opening line where he's talking about uh, the the chill of summer ending and of winter coming on i think is an interesting interesting possibility to circle around and you you yourself uh my astute literary friend you dug up a, an interesting line <laughs> in this regard that uh that may lend credence to this theory so uh this comes again from uh, daniel abraham who if you remember from the last episode he wrote the game of thrones uh graphic novel series and he was asked about some of the different things that he had to do in order to edit the the comic and he has this line that just kind of just comes right out and just kind of, you know, makes you, again, your hair stand up. And he says, this is Dan Abraham talking, he says, quote, There was one scene I had to rework because there's a particular line of dialogue and you wouldn't know it to look at it. That's that it's important in the last scene of A Dream of Spring. And so you have to think about the Game of Thrones graphic novel. And not, not a lot of folks have read it, but I would encourage people to read it. Um, it, it is a great addition if you want to see some of the ideas that Martin has in, in terms of how he visualizes the story. But you do have this line that Martin told Dan Abraham that he needed to keep in the book because it's important to the last scene of A Dream of Spring. And then a few years later, Anne Grohl, who's George's editor, had said, quote, I do know the end point of Brand's storyline. And Dan Abraham, who has been adapting the graphic novel of Game of Thrones for me, knows where Tyrion ends up. So maybe it's a line from Tyrion to Game of Thrones since Daniel Abraham knows the end point for Tyrion, but I'm not so sure. I think that when Angrel talked about I do know the end point of Bran's storyline, I wonder if that's speaking about the end of the story being in from Bran's point of view and that the final chapter is going to be from Bran's, um, from Bran's perspective. And a... A friend of ours and a, a writer from, from the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire um, site, A4187021, otherwise known as Florian, my friend from Germany, uh, has a really fascinating uh, idea about what the final line is going to be. So here's the opening line from Brand 1. Quote, The morning had dawned clear and cold with a Christmas that hinted at the end of summer. So that line opens the entire story, which indicates a transition from summer, from warmness, from goodness, from the things that come with summer, towards winter, towards death, towards the things we're going to be seeing as the story progresses of, of, of summer ending and all the terrible things that come with the end of summer occurring. 
So Florian's idea is that the final line of A Dream of Spring is as follows, quote, The morning had dawned clear and warm with a softness that hinted at the end of winter. And like Emmett was talking that. about. That's great. Yeah, it is. And like Emmett was talking about, that closes the loop in A Song of Ice and Fire. Winter has ended. The others are defeated in some way, hopefully. And Bran is, is existing in some form, whether as a tree or as a boy or as what, however he's going to end up in the story, that he's going to be witnessing the end of all of the suffering and terror and horror that the characters have experienced in A Song of Ice and Fire and sees spring. The final book is A Dream of Spring. It's the final chapter in A Dream of Spring. And the dream ends and summer is finally here. And I think that's just a terrific way. If Martin chooses to go that way, he might have something even better in, in mind. But I think it's a ter- terrific way to just close out the series and bring us full circle from Bran talking about that winter is coming in his first chapter and that winter ends and summer is coming in its final chapter. Amen, brother. That would be an amazing, amazing closing line to the series, bringing it full circle, like you say, and kind of all the wisdom Bran has accumulated uh, since this first chapter. You know, the, the Starks have that line of winter is coming. That's their house words. But as I've said earlier in this episode, in this chapter, we see Ned inadvertently cut off the news that winter is coming and prevent that word from getting out. And so by the time you come around, come back around to this at the end of the circle, at the end of the, the end of the story, we have seen that circle close fully and Bran has under winter has come and everyone has t- taken in that lesson and you go out with the same POV that you started with and hopefully with a a more hopeful direction for Westeros, a dream of spring, like you say. And I, yeah, I had chills when, when he came up with that line. That would be an amazing way to close the story, and I can only hope it's true. Yeah, so props to Florian for coming up with that line, and here's hoping that Martin follows suit on, on Florian's suggestion. So that is all that we're giving for this episode on Brand 1. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've been talking now for about two hours, as my recording is looking at right now. Uh, so I hope you have a lot to uh, get out of the episode and uh, let us know what you liked about the episode, what you didn't like. And, um, you know, we're all, like I said in our first episode, we're we're open to feedback, positive, negative, whatever. And we, we just want to hear from you guys. And we really appreciate all the feedback, again, that we've gotten from on the first episode. And we, we would love to keep that that dialogue going as as we progress through, through Game of Thrones. Hey, man, I love all the dialogue that spread it up around our first episode and I love how many of you guys clearly enjoyed it and uh, thought it through and had interesting ideas to say so keep that up, you know we're doing it for, for you guys, not just to hear the sounds of our own voices as much as we love that so let us know what you think, let us know what we can improve let us know where you agree and disagree and uh, we will we will keep that going when we uh, get to our next chapter which is going to be Cattle in One where we really get into the backstory of Robert's Rebellion and the 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 political and social situations of Westeros, which are really only hinted at in those first couple chapters. Catelyn won, uh, fittingly for a character who is very much tied into political debates and political intrigue, is where we will really start getting into the nitty-gritty of that. So I certainly look forward to delving into that with you, sir. Yeah, and it'll be a whole lot of fun again to jump into it. And in the meantime, feel free to follow us on our official Twitter uh, page. That is at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Or you can also follow our individual Twitter accounts at Brendan B. Fish. And at Poor Quentin. 
So keep in touch with us. Let us know what you think. And we'll look forward to talking with you guys next week about Catlin 1. Yes, indeed. See you then. The Not A Podcast podcast is written and recorded by Brendan B. Fish and Paul Quentin. The music that you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called A Last Goodbye. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and we'll see you guys in a week.